Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Friday afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Uh, some other issues we'll get to in this hour, your phone calls as well. But want to start with an interesting uh, new book on Alberta politics. You know, it used to be the most interesting thing about Alberta politics, just how massive and sprawling its political dynasties were. Over the past, I don't know, 12 years, Alberta politics has become very interesting for different reasons. And the last two elections in particular were pretty significant and historic. You know, the NDP election victory in 2015 shocked a lot of people. And then everything that transpired after it and the entrance of, the rise of, and then the subsequent fall of Jason Kenney. Well, that's the subject of a new book. It's called Blue Storm, The Rise and Fall of Jason Kenney. Looking at Jason Kenney's rise to prominence in Alberta politics, rise to power, and then where things went so badly wrong for him. The guy who romped to victory in the last election isn't around now to contest the next one. So this is the first scholarly analysis of the 2019 Alberta election and then what transpired after. Well, joining us to talk more about it is one of its authors and editors, uh, Dwayne Bratt, put this book together along with Richard Sutherland and the late David Terrace. Dwayne Bratt, political science professor, Mount Royal University. Good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Happy to be here. Yeah, and, and just, a, I mean, on a sad note, uh, you know, David Terrace, of course, helped put this book together. And over the years, he was, you know, very generous with his time and his insights uh, for all of us in the media on politics in Alberta. So bittersweet, I would imagine, that, you know, this book has, as well, is about to come out next week, and, and, and he's not around to, to be a part of it. Yeah, that was, uh, that was really uh, tragic. Um, and uh, this is his, uh, his last project, and that's why the, uh, the book was dedicated to, to David's memory, because, quite frankly, this book and the previous book, Orange Chinook, which looked at the Notley years, yeah. would not have been done with, without David. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. You think back over the last few years. I mean, if you know, I hopped in my time machine and I handed a copy of Blue Storm to Dwayne Bratt circa, you know, 2018, 2019, <laughs> I mean, it just would have seemed crazy, right? It, it would have, particularly the second part. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the rise of Jason Kenney would have made perfect sense sure. in 2018. Um, and I can tell you when we, when we started this project, the goal really was to describe what we saw as the conservative restoration, right? So you have that 44-year PC dynasty, the NDP break that dynasty, and then the United Conservative Party come in in 2019, and they were going to restore conservative rule. And that's what the book was going to be about. Uh, and in 2019, arguably, Jason Kenney was the most powerful conservative in this country. Um, you know, he unites his party, he wins a massive election, and he has a clear agenda on where he's going to go from, you know, reducing public spending uh, to bringing in a more, um, you know, socially conservative school curriculum and, and the whole nine yards. And then less than a year in, COVID hits. Yeah. And so then we thought, well, now the book is going to be about COVID and the COVID response, and we're going to document how this province managed it. Uh, and so that was going to be um, you know, the, the, what the book was about. And then the third part, which we never imagined when we started it, was the downfall of Jason Kenney. And so really, this book covers all three of those stories, the conservative restoration, the response to COVID, and how did someone so powerful get pushed out by his own party before even completing a term in office? And I don't think it was fated to be that way, but it is interesting if we take a, a bigger snapshot here that maybe chaos and instability is just how Alberta politics functions now. We, we, we look at Ed Stelmack and Alison Redford <clears throat> and then Jim Prentice losing and Rachel Notley losing. Maybe that's just how things are now. It, it could very well be. Uh, it's been uh, Ralph Klein was the last uh, conservative premier to finish a term in office, and that was in 2004. And ever since then, there has been so much uh, turmoil in this province, largely within the Conservative Party, but not exclusively. Um, And there's no sense that that turmoil is going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. But it didn't feel like it was going that way. And we look back to 2017 and 2018 and (coughs) everything going right here. Jason Kenney returns, wins the PC leadership, uh, oversees this merger, uh, wins the the leadership of that new party that romps to victory in in the election. You know, was it was it him 
was it a moment that was was made for him? I mean, did he make the moment? How do we how do we look back I, I at that period? I think it's a combination of, of both, and mm-hmm. that's why it's such an interesting story to figure out how the architect of the merger, basically creating the UCP, most of those candidates uh, were not part of the existing legacy parties. They were they were brand new, most of them. Um, it, it, Kenny had a clear stamp on everything. And where did it all go wrong? Now, it would be easy to say it was all because of COVID. Right. And obviously, COVID played an important role in that. Um, but many other leaders in this country of multiple parties all won re-election um, during COVID, from Justin Trudeau to John Horgan to Scott Moe to Doug Ford to Blaine Higgs to Francois Legault. Why? Kenny didn't even get that opportunity. So I don't think it was solely about um, COVID. I think there are a couple other factors there. Um, but one is around his leadership style. And so, yes, he put his stamp on the party, but it was a very top-down approach for what had been a grassroots movement. He didn't have good relations with backbench members uh, of his own caucus. Um, he brought. He seemed to lack an understanding of modern Alberta, even though he had been an MP for 20 years from Calgary, he hadn't spent a lot of time here. And I think that that showed at various moments. Uh, <clears throat> so there was there were leadership challenges that, that Kenny had. And then you've also got the merger, which was his great achievement. But maybe in retrospect, not the greatest idea, because Wild Rose and the PCs had fought each other for, for years. They came together because they, the common enemy was the NDP and, and Rachel Notley. They defeat her, but those old tensions come back, not just between the progressive conservative wing and the, the Wild Rose wing, but rural, urban, um, fiscal conservatives versus social conservatives. And that all came to the forefront with, with COVID. So COVID was important, obviously, but I think it lit a match under some of these fundamental characteristics. Right, and, and and those are factors that maybe weren't present or aren't present in Saskatchewan politics and Ontario politics, because and it's something that's explored in the book, and it's hard to understand, right? I mean, there's some direct parallels. Maybe Scott Moe's a closer one, but you know, Conservative premiers and Doug Ford and Scott Moe, and you know, <coughs> Scott Moe's COVID approach is pretty similar to Jason Kenney's. You know, he's got an NDP opposition, much like Jason Kenney has an NDP opposition. But my goodness, you know, the the political fates of the two couldn't be more different. Oh, a- absolutely. And you wonder if that's because the NDP poses a bigger threat in Alberta than it does in Saskatchewan now, or whether it's just due to those internal challenges within the Alberta conservative movement. You you look at the federal conservatives, it took them a decade of fighting uh, and losing multiple elections before they were finally ready to come together. In this case, maybe it was a bit premature, maybe maybe bringing those forces together uh, after losing one election uh, wasn't the best idea. And, and we still see those those tensions today. So what what is Kenny's legacy? I mean, the, you know, the creation of the party is his <laughs> legacy for sure. Um, but at the same time, you know, you think about how the UCP is, is going to run this next election and how they're going to tried to sell their record. You know, is, is it Jason Kenney's record that they run on? Do they, they try to run away from his record? Because I think that, that speaks to the legacy question. Oh, it, it absolutely does. And if you, I don't think you can explain Danielle Smith winning the leadership or governing the way she has without looking at the example of, of Jason Kenney. If you look at the two major features of her campaign, um, during the spring and summer and as premier, it was the Sovereignty Act, which I think was a direct rebuke to what she felt was a, a lack of toughness against Ottawa by Jason Kenney. She dismisses it as, you know, lawsuits and panels and letters and, you know, and, and the example they cite is winning the equalization referendum and then doing nothing with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think the Sovereignty Act goes a step further than what Kenney did. And the others around COVID. Um, Obviously, as we, we mentioned, you know, there, there was a wing of his own party that pushed him out over public health restrictions he brought in over COVID. And so what do we see with Smith? You know, promising amnesty, 
um, you know, uh, apologizing uh, for those restrictions, pledging never to do it again, um, you know, firing Dina Hinshaw. So Smith is a direct response to the fall of, of Jason Kenney. But has Jason Kenney also left her the playbook of how to beat the NDP in an election? How different is the 2023 election from 2019? Oh, I think it is different uh, in some respects. Um, the, the 2019 election was, was very long. It wasn't a 30-day election period. It was almost the moment that Kenney became leader. It was about a year and a half. And I would say about six months out, maybe even further, it was clear that Jason Kenney was going to win that election. In this case, you've got a, a relatively brand new premier against a very experienced leader of the opposition, the most experienced leader of the opposition we've ever had as a former premier. And, you know, the, the polls show just how tight this is going to be, uh, how important the city of Calgary will be. And so the campaign in 2023 is going to be very different from 2019. Where they will share commonalities is Kenny focused on the Trudeau-Notley alliance. He focused as much in 2019 on Justin Trudeau as he did on Rachel Notley, because Rachel Notley, even at the end of her time as premier, was still fairly popular as an individual. Justin Trudeau is not. If you look at the Smith campaign strategy, it's exactly that, except now they've thrown Jagmeet Singh in there. And so it's the the Trudeau-Singh-Notley alliance, because uh, even polls that show the UCP doing well show that Notley is much more popular than Daniel Smith. And so they're going to try as best as they can to tie her into Justin Trudeau, and that is out of the Kenny playbook. Now, Jason Kenney, of course, has moved on. He's found himself uh, a new job. I, for, for the time being, it seems, he's likely to stay out of the, the political spotlight. But, but for how long? I mean, w- watching him and now writing about him, what, what does it tell us about what the future may hold? And that I don't know. He is such a political animal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that is why even after losing the leadership review, you know, he stayed in office and was making policies and was speaking out. Um you know, um, the, the whole time. I can't imagine a political lifer like this, you know, staying quiet for, for long. I think there's obviously been some vacation time, some self-reflection, but I don't think we've seen the last of, uh, of Jason Kenney. I suspect you're right. Uh, the book is called Blue Storm, The Rise and Fall of Jason Kenney, chronicling what's been a, a fascinating chapter in uh, Alberta political history. Dwayne Brad, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Dwayne Bratt, political science professor, Department of Economics, Justice, Policy Studies at Mount Royal University. So co-editor, contributor uh, to this book, first scholarly analysis of the 2019 Alberta election and what's followed. Again, it's called Blue Storm, the sequel, I guess, to Orange Chinook, uh, the book that these uh, individuals also put together. So that election was historic for other reasons. Uh, So too was 2019. And the fact, though, that Jason Kenney... Uh, doesn't even make it to the next election, right? I mean, at least Rachel Notley was able to contest for re-election. She lost in 2019. Uh, Jason Kenney doesn't make it to that point. So for someone to have reached such heights and then to fall in the way he did, it it is quite unprecedented and honestly quite shocking. So this is uh, an interesting analysis of, of why. Why 2019 unfolded as it did and why everything subsequent to 2019 folded the way it did. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. Um, back when the uh, NDP took power, shortly after 2015, uh, they embarked uh, on a plan to change Alberta's minimum wage, to raise Alberta's minimum wage. This was at a time where uh, there were calls, there was a push right across North America for $15 an hour for the minimum wage. And the NDP very much jumped on that bandwagon. So the minimum wage rose very quickly in Alberta from just over $10 an hour up to 15 UCP won the 2019 election. They came in. Uh, they put a freeze on things. And in fact, they created a lower minimum wage for students. But the uh, minimum wage was kept at $15 an hour, which are where it remains today. The UCP also commissioned an expert panel to review the impact of that uh, rush to 15 and to offer some recommendations to shape minimum wage policy going forward. That work was done. That report was submitted. It has not been released, though, for three years. Uh, the economist who headed up that panel 
In a piece uh, written for the C.D. Howe Institute calling on the Alberta government, specifically Jobs Minister Brian Jean, to release that report to let Albertans see it for themselves and to help shape the conversation that's likely to occur now going forward as we decide on how best to deal with minimum wage. The UCP and the NDP clearly see the uh, issue very differently, and Albertans will be asked to choose between those two parties in the upcoming provincial election. So joining us to talk more about this issue is the aforementioned uh, economist, former chair of this expert panel on minimum wage, Joseph Marchand, is with the uh, Department of Economics at the University of Alberta. Professor Marchand, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Happy to be here. So three years this report has been sitting there. I guess what's prompted this uh, on your port n- part now to, to call for its, its final release here? Yeah, I mean, we, we had the unfortunate timing of handing in our report, I mean, just before kind of COVID hit and it took the government's attention away. Yes. Um, and, and I think it was really difficult for the government and for myself to kind of bring attention back to this issue, given that the the fog of COVID has kind of been still hanging over us, although it's it's going away now, I, I hope. Um, and so with the election coming up, uh, provincial election coming up in, in three months, I was thinking, you know, this is kind of the last gasp to get this report out and get this information to voters, because I know that both the NDP and the UCP are going to mention minimum wage and issues of affordability and issues of inflation in their election election platforms. Right. And I think that this issue is kind of like a microcosm of how we should evaluate those platforms. I guess you're in kind of an awkward position because, I mean, you, you wrote the report, you know what's in it, you know what it says. I, I mean, are you kind of bound in a way? Or, you, I guess you can't release this yourself, can you? Uh, I, I don't believe I can, um, and I, I don't think that's kind of you know my role to do that. It, right. it, it was the government that called for this, and uh, you know I, I stand by their decision, kind of one way or the other, um, to release this. Um, I think it should be released in its entirety. As far as I know, um, there is a heavily redacted version that is floating out there, which I have not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's all been through the, the government itself. Um, so I can't speak to what's in the report, but all along the way over these last three years, um, I have been kind of plugging away on my own independent research and that I can talk about. Right. And, and I do want to get into that. Let's take a step back and, and talk about kind of what the mandate was here. The the previous NDP government had, had made some changes to minimum wage. The UCP came in in 2019. They made their own changes to the minimum wage. And then this panel was struck. And what was it you were tasked with reviewing? That's right. So uh, d- just to recap, so NDP um, had in their election platform platform back in 2015, uh, this $15 minimum wage. Uh, so given that we were at 10.20 an hour back then for the minimum wage, um, this was an increase of 47% nominally or about 44% in, in real terms because mm-hmm. inflation used to not be a thing back then, um, uh, whereas now it is. Um, and so they got rid of the automatically increasing uh, minimum wage formula that the province had in place. And by the by the end of uh, um, uh, the policy, which was uh, October 2018, Alberta had its $15 minimum wage, which is really notable because we are the first North American state or province to have that nominal $15 minimum wage. Um, so, so it is very notable, but it was also kind of an experiment um, because we were the first, right? And so immediately I had been kind of talking about what I thought was going to happen um, with that policy. And so when the the 2019 um, election platforms came out, uh, the UCP had lines in there about the minimum wage. And one of them was to retain the, the $15 minimum wage and uh, and to do a study that analyzes the impacts of the $15 minimum wage um, as it was put in place from 2015 to 2018, uh, and then to look at the elimination of the liquor server differential, uh, which also went away as part of that $15 policy. And it was, um, 
it was fully gone by 2016. Um, so that was actually a 63% increase um, for liquor servers mm. at that time. And so, so yeah, that was pretty much the, uh, the, the mandate that we were given is to look at general effects of the $15 minimum wage and to look at uh, the elimination of the liquor server differential. And I guess that status quo then is, is a 2019. That's, that's still the status quo today, isn't it? Well, so the you know the, when we're looking at this this policy um, at that point in 2019, looking back at what happened between 2015 and 2018, that doesn't change in 2023, right? We're, we're analyzing a policy of the past, um, and so even though three years have gone by. Th- this report was about everything that happened during that time, and those were the substantial changes to the minimum wage in this province, the most substantial changes ever to the minimum wage in this province. And so I think it's worth bringing the report out so we can have that conversation, so Albertans can have that information about what happened then. That way we can evaluate what the election platforms are saying this time around in 2023 and what kind of policy we should have going forward. You know, by the way, if we'd stuck with that pre-2015 formula where we were at, I think, as you said, maybe just over $10 an hour and there were some built-in increases, would we be at or close to $15 an hour here in 2023? That's, that's a really good question. So the, the one thing I would know for certain is that we would have had minimum wage increases every year. Right. So that we would have known for certain. So the $15 minimum wage wouldn't have just been paused uh, since since 2018. We would have the increases. But would it be $15? No, it would still be lower than 15 had we had we had we stuck with that formula. However, the increases more recently would have been a lot larger than the increases of the past because it was um, the, the formula was based on earnings growth, so half on earnings growth and half on price growth. And we all know oh, yes. that <laughs> both of those things have increased a lot more lately, right? Just a trip to the, the supermarket, I'll tell you that. Right. So based on your own research, let's talk about the impact of those changes and those dramatic changes. It was pretty contentious at the time. You know, there were those who believe it was fair to do this. That was a, a fair or living wage and $15 was a real focus at the time. Then there was the concern about such a dramatic increase, what it would mean to businesses, what it would mean to hours and benefits for those earning at or near minimum wage. What has your own research found on, on some of those questions? That's right. So, so I've had the, the pleasure of uh, teaming up with another economist here at the University of Alberta, Sebastian Fassati, who's an econometrician in the uh, Department of Economics. And we took a look at this just through the lens of employment, what these changes meant for employment. And we find kind of interesting results, but they're a mixed bag, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things we look at is how did workers or or even did workers move up the wage distribution as the minimum wage went up incrementally from 1020 to 1120 to 1220 to 1360 and then to 15 and what we find is about 300,000 workers can be seen moving up incrementally through these different wage bins okay the problem is they didn't all make it they didn't all make it to the to the $15 wage bin. We lost some of those workers, and we lost about 25 to 30,000 of those workers somewhere along the way. Which workers did we lose? Well, we lost young workers, and we lost workers outside of our two main cities of Edmonton and Calgary. Now, these are things that could have been predicted ahead of time because the literature has has told us not only what the employment effects would roughly be, but also who they would be for. Mm-hmm. Um, and younger workers were usually targeted in the past, and that's where we see the job losses occurring. And then lower price areas outside of the urban areas might also have larger negative employment impacts because wages are are just wages and prices are just lower in those areas. So they'd have to make larger adjustments on the employment end. So these are things we all could have predicted ahead of time. And actually, I did 
predict ahead of time that it would be around right. a 25,000 loss. Uh, back in 2017, I had, I had put my pen to paper and said that. And it wasn't magic that I came up with that number. It, that just so happens to be the elasticity in the, in the literature. Basically, that you'd have about a 10% uh, loss for a 100% increase in the minimum wage, or you could say a 10% increase in the minimum wage leads to about a 1% loss in employment. And that's almost exactly what we see. And that's kind of surprising, given how fast and how big this minimum wage increase was, that we see kind of the same exact number in percentage terms. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, like you say, maybe it was predictable because we, we see that manifested elsewhere. So why do you think it is then that, that this has often been, when it comes to, to poverty, anti-poverty strategies on, on government's part, uh, the go-to? Maybe because it's, it's simple, it's, it's easy to do, it's, it's visible, you know, but it doesn't seem very effective. Well, you know, it, it depends how you cut it. So 300, 000, about 300,000 workers did move up the wage distribution. We lost right. about, you know, 25, 30,000. So just in employment terms, it depends how you cut it. In terms of the distribution itself, one of the things that's really surprising about this policy that we also have in our independent research was the reach up the wage distribution. So previously in Canada, the reach of the minimum wage policy was only up to the fifth percentile, um, so a, a really low end of the wage distribution for male workers and up to the 10th percentile for female workers. This $15 policy in Alberta actually reached the 15th percentile. So we re- this was really unprecedented mm-hmm. um, in, in distributionally. The distributional reach uh, has never been seen in Canada before. So based on these findings, based on your research, based on the impact of these changes, you know, as you say, we'll have an election uh, campaign coming up and the parties, I'm sure, will have policies and promises on minimum wage. What's your own thought, your own recommendation in terms of sensible minimum wage policy moving forward? Yeah, so generally, I'd say to have the minimum wage policy tailored especially to the locality that it's in. Given that minimum wage is set at the provincial and territorial level in Canada, that it's set to the province specifically. When I look to the history of this this nominal $15 that the NDP ran with in 2015, that wasn't coming from Alberta. That wasn't coming organically from Alberta. That was coming from fast food workers campaigning for a $15 minimum wage in New York City yeah. back in 2012. And so what we really should do is tailor the minimum wage to our specific circumstances. And I had made an argument before that we would want to increase the minimum wage when times are good and labor demand is moving out rather than in times where they're bad, like an energy bus where labor demand is coming in. But I'm as curious as you are as to what these election platforms will say. I will take them as a given, like I took this policy in, in 2015 as a given. And then I, I am very um, uh, you know, looking forward to sharing my thoughts when those policies come out. So maybe you could have me back and we could talk about them at that time. Absolutely. And in the meantime, I suppose the ball's now in the government's court in, in terms of whether releasing this, uh, whether this report is to be released. But you still believe, despite all we know and, and all the independent research that, that's out there, that this report can still add to the, the conversation here. Absolutely. Um, I mean, for for individuals that want information about the policy uh, right now, you can Google Joseph Marchand, find my website. My uh, work with Sebastian is is right there on my website, or you can find it through the Ideas Network. But given that the government also has this report, which has not just my input, but the input from eight other panel members, um, it's a different product, and it says a lot more than, than just what I've said today. So I think it's worthwhile to get that information out to Albertans before we see what, uh, what, what they're floating in terms of policy. Yeah, indeed. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Marchand, appreciate your insight on all of this. And uh, again, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rob. There you go. Joseph Marchand, economist at the University of Alberta, was the lead author in this report, chair of this panel. Again, the UCP asked him to do this, which is what's so weird about it. It's not like he's going to to skew toward the NDP perspective. In fact, you know, he had criticized the NDP plan in, in 
predicted, rightly so, as it turned out, that it would lead to job losses. So this was the, the guy that the UCP, you know, asked to head up this work. They did the work. They submitted the reports. And for whatever reason, the government refuses to release it. Now, as he points out, yeah, this February of 2020, they hand this in. And then, of course, you know, a few weeks later, the pandemic comes down on us and government's understandably distracted. Okay, but here we are three years later. I mean, if we're going to pay to to get this work done as taxpayers, then let's let's see what it produced. And yeah, as we go into the selection, you know, we've kind of avoided the minimum wage question for a while, but you know, we're going to need to decide how to move forward on this, aren't we? By the way, this year Canadian milk is seven dollars a liter. When I go for my haircut, people say, "Wow, seven dollars, Jerry, for a little bit of milk." I say, well, you have to go higher up because we have no say anymore as a dairy farmer on our own farm. Because Yeah, and uh, that's from a, a video that went viral earlier this month. A dairy farmer in southern Ontario basically recording himself dumping 30,000 liters of milk, having to dump it because they were over their quota. And that's the only option. There's no option to donate it even to a food bank or a homeless shelter. There's no option to to get it onto the market because if there's more supply in the market, the price is going to come down. The price is set. And so there's limits to what you're able to produce. That's how it works. And yes, these are pejorative terms, cartel, price fixing, that in other contexts would be illegal. But that's essentially what supply management is. It is a legalized cartel in that only those who hold quotas can produce dairy products. And the price is fixed. The price is set by these marketing boards. And that's been in place for a very long time. I think what's, what's interesting here is this video going viral. It's exposed Canadians to this in a lot of instances for the first time. The Canadians maybe didn't really know about this. And so, yeah, at a time when food prices are, are a top concern for Canadians, to see all of this good milk going down the drain in order to sustain a higher price, got people wondering whether it has to be that way. Now, dismantling supply management is a controversial issue to say the least. But does it have to go to that extent? What else could we be doing to craft something that's fairer to consumers and and not just a policy that's only focused on producers? Is it possible we find a compromise within supply management that less milk goes down the drain? Maybe more of it ends up on, on the shelves. Maybe we end up paying a little bit less. So how do we fix the milk dumping problem? Well, someone who's written a lot about this issue is Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. Professor Charlebois, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Yeah, like I say, I mean, this, this video really took off in a way that previous conversations around supply management really haven't. What, why do you think this, this resonated so much, first of all? Uh, because it made the problem real and very visual. Uh, I mean, let's face it. I mean, to see a dairy farmer dump 30,000 liters of milk uh, in front of a camera is something that we've never seen before in Canada. And for 25 years, I've been talking about milk dumping, uh, and uh, people looked at me like I was on 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 Mars, you know, thinking that well, that's not possible. We produce what we need with supply management, so why would we ever dump milk? And and the milk dumping exists because we want to maintain prices at a very high level in Canada, and, and milk prices at Farmgate are very high in Canada compared to other places around the world. And also, we just don't, it's just so easy to dump. I mean, instead of just finding new markets, develop a strategy, have a strategic reserve, mandate the Canadian Dairy Commission to look into the matter, it's much more work. Dumping is so easy. Mm-hmm. And so that's, those are the reasons why uh, this subject of milk dumping has been taboo for a while it's the big elephant in the room no one wants to talk about especially dairy boards dairy boards are just pretending that the problem doesn't exist 
And they always try to silence everyone who speaks about it, which is really unfortunate. But the reality is that we do dump millions and millions of liters of milk every year. And right now, dairy farmers are just pointing fingers at Jerry Hoogan, the person who was on that video, calling him incompetent, a clown, and calling him all sorts of words just because they're upset with him because he exposed a huge problem. He did. Now, this is one farmer, one producer. That's 30,000 liters. So if we look at all of the, the quota holders across the year and how much gets dumped, do, do we have a rough idea of, of how much we're talking about on an annual basis? We, we looked at numbers ourselves. We, we do believe that in Canada every given year, uh, we dump anywhere between 100 million to 300 million liters of milk a year, which okay. represent about represents about 3% of the production, which is actually not bad, but the, but the amount is actually outstanding. In the U.S., it's actually more than that. And what I've argued for many years is that in Canada, we have the perfect system to eliminate all waste because it's, it's very vertically coordinated. We have a Crown Corporation called the CDC. Uh, we already have a strategic reserve for butter, for goodness sake. Why not have one for, for powdered milk? in this country and, and figure out a way to process the milk and ship it somewhere else. China built a $225 million plant in Kingston, Ontario yeah. to do just that. So China buys Ontario milk, processes it in Kingston and ships all of it as infant formula to China. And very few people know about it. Well, I think part of the problem is once we acknowledge that we're able to export milk, like we export beef or lentils or all kinds of other products, you know, maybe that gets us down the path of wondering whether we need tariffs and supply management in the first place. Is, is that one of the reasons why we're so hesitant to do this? Well, of course. And so dairy farmers will be quick in saying, well, we can't export. We have a very protectionist industry. Partners will be upset. But here's another thing, Rob, that perhaps you didn't know. Uh, did you know that, that that Canada is the largest croissant exporter in the world now as of this year? We export for over $3 billion worth of croissant in the world. Wow. And you know what's in those croissants? Butter. Yeah. We export tons and tons of butter. And nobody knows about it. Nobody's asking questions. I asked a question to the Game Dairy Commission. So if we're exporting all that butter... Does that impact butter prices in our own stores in Canada? And they didn't know the answer either. Well, I mean, it seems pretty clear. If, if all of this surplus milk or butter ended up on store shelves, I mean, the, obviously the price would be a lot lower than it is. So I, I don't know if that's realistic, given that part of what supply management does is set the price. So what you're talking about is, is to make milk dumping illegal, but that we would have a strategic reserve set up. You force the issue. Right now, for boards, there is no issue. Mm -hmm. Force the issue. Milk is essentially a public good in Canada compared to the U.S. because of our government-sanctioned quota system. Make it illegal. Force the issue. Get boards to work with the CDC to organize a strategy. And as a buffer, you create a strategic reserve. So you basically have to build a plant. Like I said, for many, many years, I heard many dairy farmers, oh, we can't export to China. That's impossible. We can't export milk to China. Well, we got the Chinese to show us how to do it. So why don't we actually vertically integrate, invest in ourselves? And my my suggestion would probably be to build a plant somewhere in Woodstock, Ontario. That would probably be the most appropriate place to do it and develop a strategy to market wholesome, high-quality milk powder to the rest of the world. And that could be done within the confines of supply management. Well, so here's the trick here, Rob. <laughs> we, 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 we would need to probably create a new class right. to allow the system, the regime, to export those products. And, of course, 
you would need to consult with their trading partners that I'm sure that the Americans would have a word with us about that. And that's why it can't happen overnight. You need to, but now compared to just 10 years ago, things are much different. Our economy is much open. We're actually allowing dairy products from Europe to come in, from Asia to come in, from the United States to come in. So our dairy market is much more open than just 10 years ago. So there's a lot of movement right now going on that we can see. And so I suspect that there would be uh, discussions around exporting powder milk would be welcome with our trading partners right now, much more so than 10 years ago. From a consumer perspective, Sylvan, and, and, you know, like I said, and we've talked about food inflation and it's top of mind for Canadians and there's a lot of factors in, involved, but this is one area where it's deliberate. We set the price. We decide what the price is going to be. So that's where a lot of this frustration comes from. So what in, in all of this could potentially benefit dairy consumers? Well, if you actually absorb surpluses and you do something with it, obviously uh, you're likely – I mean, what what's going on in people's minds right now? How can we possibly dump millions of liters of milk while prices are skyrocketing at a grocery store? It doesn't make any sense. We produce what we need, so if we produce more, why are we dumping it? And so obviously boards are concerned about what would happen to farm gate prices if we actually recuperate more surpluses – Guess what's going to happen to prices? They're likely going to drop. So it changes the dynamic altogether. And these are discussions that boards will need to have. But certainly, certainly, you would compromise the kind of prices that farmers are currently getting right now, for sure. Really interesting. We'll leave it there. Professor Charlebois, always appreciate the insights. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. My pleasure. Take care. I'll argue as well. There you go. That's Sylvain Charlebois, Dalhousie University, uh, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. BC wrote this week about how we could easily, easily fix this problem. Make dumping illegal, create a strategic reserve. And let's export this. Then if we've got surplus, at least let's export this and profit from that. And as he points out, you know, it was always said that we couldn't do that. But we do. And, and this came to light during the whole baby formula shortage. Remember that? We're all freaking out about, you know, the lack of baby shortage in the U.S. or baby formula shortage in the U.S. and in Canada. And then it was Sylvain Charlebois and others who said, hey, by the way, there's this plant in Kingston, Ontario that produces a whole bunch of baby formula and it all goes to China. Canada Royal Milk is the company. So Ontario dairy farmers sell product to this factory, to this plant. They produce baby formula. They ship it to China. So we do export to China. Canada Royal Milk is the, uh, the company. It's in Kingston, Ontario. So we could do that easily. So why don't we? Like why, why do we tolerate all of this milk going to waste every single year? I mean, it happens to protect the price. That's why it's done. But are we okay with that? And like I said earlier, you know, these things like price fixing and cartel, like that sounds like, you know, serious stuff. But I mean, that's what it is. It's enshrined in law, so it's not illegal. I mean, the dictionary definition of a cartel is an organization of a few independent producers for the purpose of improving the profitability of the firms involved. Or this one, a cartel is a group of independent market participants who collude with each other in order to improve their profits and dominate the market. Like, that's what this is by design. I mean, you can defend it if you want to defend it, but I mean, that's what it is. Tonight, I'm announcing new standards require all construction materials used in federal infrastructure projects to be made in America. And I'm sure he does mean it. That, that was uh, U.S. President Joe Biden in his uh, State of the Union address the other night, uh, reiterating uh, his support for Buy American policies. And it's, it's one of the things that, interestingly enough, the, this president and the previous president have in common, that sort of protectionist bent and the belief that government policy can be an instrument to benefiting American companies.
the U.S. is not alone in you know, pursuing protectionist policies. Unfortunately, Canada has been guilty of this, too. Of course, looking in on this latest announcement, there's some concern. The Canadian manufacturers and exporters, for example, called it bad news for Canadian manufacturing and bad news for integrated North American supply chains. Says there's a need for a strong response to push back, which is all true. I mean, it's not just Canadian companies that should worry. And protectionist policies are, are bad news for the country in question, too. It was interesting to see um, Jason Furman who in fact was on the, he was chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under former President Barack Obama, says buy American rules on materials for infrastructure might possibly mean more U.S. manufacturing jobs, but likely at the expense of U.S. construction jobs, and certainly means fewer roads, bridges, and ports built, and thus a slightly poorer country. So joining us to talk about the implications of these kind of protectionist policies and how we ensure that free trade prevails. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Colin Grabo, who's a research fellow at the Center for Trade Policy Studies with the Cato Institute, Cato.org. Colin, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having me on the show. So how similar, how different is Joe Biden's Buy American approach to Donald Trump's Buy American approach? Well, it's interesting because, of course, President Biden ran as as the anti-Trump in many respects, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a break from the previous from the Trump presidency. And yet, when it comes to trade policy, there's been uh, quite a bit of continuity uh, between the two. Uh, Trump was all about America first, which he interpreted as we need to buy more American stuff, uh, buy less foreign stuff. Trade deficits are bad. Uh, and now under President Biden, uh, one of his first acts in, uh, when, when he became president uh, in January 2021 was uh, to sign uh, uh, some executive orders uh, trying to strengthen these domestic content uh, requirements. So he has a long track record of supporting these types of laws, which uh, puts him in company with his predecessor. So what are the implications of this policy? Now, this would pertain to, I guess, highway construction, you know, bridges, that sort of thing, infrastructure construction. So this would would favor U.S. manufacturers then? Is that the understanding? That's that's the goal, certainly. Uh, for, for decades, we've, we've had uh, provisions like this in place with respect to a steel and iron that's used in federally funded infrastructure projects. And then uh, at the end of, the, of 2021, this was expanded. Uh, to include other building materials like uh, lumber and drywall, fiber optic cable. And uh, then today, the Office of Management Budget announced that they're kind of uh, tweaking these uh, a bit, and there's talk of expanding it to other things like, uh, I think, paint and stains and um uh, what else? Uh, you know, uh, engineered hardwood, possibly. So uh, th- there's talk about you know further expansion of these kind of measures and some tightening and then some you know definitions around. Okay, lumber. What is that? You know, d- again, does engineered hardwood qualify? Is that uh, you know something that's uh, made? Uh, what does it mean to be American-made and, and right. uh, things of that nature? Right, and, and maybe this is good politics, and, and I mean, I wouldn't deny that, it, you know, the same might play here, the idea of buy Canadian. You know, people like the idea of supporting their fellow Canadians or Americans in, in that instance or supporting companies, that sort of thing. But, you know, good politics doesn't necessarily make for good economics. So what, what gets left out of the, the consideration here when we look at the implication of this? Yeah, well, what gets left out is when we buy foreign-made products, there's usually a very good reason for that. It's because it's cheaper or better or more available. There's some advantage to doing that. We don't do that for no reason. So when you get in the way of that, uh, you're making the the construction of infrastructure projects, in this example, uh, less efficient and more expensive, or you know, t- it takes longer to get them done. Uh, so that's kind of the opposite of what you want. And that's interesting because also in President Biden's State of the Union speech, he highlighted the need to improve American infrastructure. So these, these, there's a real tension there between I want to improve infrastructure. On the other hand, I want these other measures that make them more expensive. Um, and and you, as you noted, of course, there's kind of an intuitive um, uh, advantage to that or you know, a sense that it's good to buy American stuff. But it's not as though when we buy foreign-made stuff that that money just disappears in the ether. We never see it again. Of course, it usually returns to the United States because – it's all about trade, right? We trade. It's mutual. I buy something from Canada. Canada, you know, I think uh, uh, last year, year before, bought over $250 billion worth of American products. 
um, or they will take that money and invest it in the United States. So, you know, um, so trade is good because it gets us access to more uh, cheaper, more efficient goods. And, uh, you know, that's money that comes back to the United States eventually anyway. So, uh, you know, it's, it's mutually beneficial. We should do more of it. Well, it is. And it feels like, look, these these issues, we've been debating them, you know, going back to the original free trade agreement between our two countries. It feels like over the longer term, you know, the, the cause of free trade has, has prevailed. But in the shorter term, especially over the pandemic, it feels like maybe we've taken some steps backward. You feel like the case for free trade has, has lost a, a few steps here or that, you know, protectionist forces have prevailed a little bit over the last few years? Well, I think you're right in that uh, free trade, you know, if you look over the last several decades, it certainly has been in the ascendance. And uh, people recognize we have this era of great era of globalization and greater interconnectedness. And that's produced a lot of wealth. Um, it's alleviated a lot of poverty in a lot of countries. It's been great for um, our economies and our standard of living. But I think that um, the case for protectionism is very seductive and very intuitive if you say that you have to buy the American product. That means more American jobs. People just, you know, I think there's a real uh, obvious attraction to that. And sometimes we forget the lessons of free trade and why it's valuable. And so, unfortunately, it's one of those things that seems like we have to relearn these lessons. And so we you know, we dabble in protectionism, and then hopefully we go, oh, right, that's why we don't do that, because it drives up these costs. And it does, there are all these negative side effects that I think perhaps we overlook or, or forget about. And unfortunately, you know, these things tend to snowball, and other countries retaliate, so we all end up shooting ourselves in the foot, right? Uh, country A implements protectionist policy yeah. in response. Country B implements protectionist policy. Exactly. And that's what commonly gets overlooked. You know, you know, we, uh, we live in a world where there's, you know, there's a, there's an action and then there's the equal and opposite reaction. Countries, other countries tend not to just stay still and just take and go, okay, you're going to, you know, uh, restrict access to your market. That's fine. We're not going to do anything. Uh, you know, that just, um, it leads to similar actions, especially I suspect when it comes from the United States which is nutritionally you know, an economic leader. People, a lot of people take their cues from what we're doing. Uh, and, you know, just I think it's important um, to be the example when it comes to free trade. And people say, oh, well, Americans are doing it. Uh, it's produced good results. So we should do more. We should be like that. We should, some lessons to be learned there. Well, when Americans go in the opposite direction, then people say, oh, well, maybe that's what we should be doing too. So as you, as you point out, the snowball, it's not good for anybody. In terms of a fallback here, to, you know, to what extent can the, the the North American Free Trade Agreement, or whatever we're calling it now, the revised agreement, does it provide some safeguards here? Does any of what you know the Biden administration is looking at doing here, for example, run afoul of that or other trade agreements? Well, the the Biden administration is claiming that this is all um, this is all free and clear that, that this does not violate trade rules. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Uh, the devil may be in the details. Uh, like I said, you know, they're kind of sorting out what are, what does some of these things mean in practice. Um, so it remains to be seen exactly what the implications will be for, for Canada or other U.S. trade partners. But I think it's instructive of the fact that, you know, Canadian associations and industries, they're always speaking out uh, against this. And they're clearly worried. Uh, so that's not a good sign. No, indeed. We'll see where it all goes from here. Much more is mentioned. Cato.org, C-A-T-L. Colin, thanks so much for your insight on all of this. Appreciate you making some time for us here. Rob, thank you. All the best. Uh, that's um, Colin Graybo, Research Fellow with the Herbert A. Stifel uh, Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, Cato.org. You know, free trade needs to prevail. It's good for all involved. And protectionist policies just, just take us to a bad place. It hurts other countries, but it, it hurts the, the country at hand, in this case, the United States. But again, you know, the, the nationalist politics that go into that can seem appealing. But ultimately, if you're driving up costs, that's, that's not good for consumers. That's not good for other industries. It was like with the steel tariffs. Okay, so, the, you know, the, the White House puts tariffs on steel. And so American steel is cheaper than foreign steel. But what about the companies that make things with that steel? You know, that's why it hurt, for example, those who, who make and sell appliances, because now your input costs are higher. Those are American companies with American jobs, so raising their costs doesn't help anything. And, and that's, that's what ends up happening, especially now between Canada and the U.S. So many things are integrated that it's really hard to discern what's Canadian and what's American because certain inputs come from one country, come into the other, they create something else, and then that goes up through the supply chain. And what, what's Canadian at the end of all of that or what's American at the end of all of that? 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.